John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48, it says, Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Why do you make your, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. In John chapter 8, Jesus has made claim after outrageous claim, and those claims are piled higher and deeper, and each is more shocking than the last claim. He claims to come from God. In this chapter, Jesus reveals that all true honor comes from God. Jesus claims a unique relationship to God and then a unique knowledge of God. Jesus claims a unique obedience to God. William Barclay wrote, and I quote, In Jesus alone we see what God wants us to know and what God wants us to be. Unquote. Jesus claims unique abilities, the ability to tell the truth at all time, the ability to forgive sin, and now the latest outrageous claim, the ability to escape death. Now, it's hard for us to understand just how outrageous that is. Imagine a politician said to you, and he or she was running on a ticket, and she said, I will never lie to you, and I will lower taxes and reduce government. Yeah, that's right. That's the right response. You laugh. That's a skeptical laugh. That's a skeptical laugh born from people who have made promises to you and they've never kept those promises. But Jesus is amazing. Because Jesus, when he makes promises, he also makes a provision to keep the promise. These are extraordinary claims. And anyone making the claim should rightly come under intense scrutiny. The religious leaders have asked a question after question. Now, I want to remind you in John chapter 8, when they ask question after question, 
are they looking for answers or are they looking for an argument? It's an argument. Look at the questions. Where is your father? Verse 19. Who are you? Verse 25. Will he kill himself? Verse 22. Who do you make yourself out to be? Verse 53. The religious leaders have called Jesus a liar in verse 13. An illegitimate son in verse 41. A Samaritan in verse 48. A devil in verse 48 and verse 52. Slander. Most of you know what slander is. Slander is an untruthful spoken, that means an oral statement about a person that harms that person's standing or reputation in the community. In our culture, a slander is a tort or a civil wrong. The injured person can bring a lawsuit against the person who's made the false statement. And when the statement is made via the broadcast media like radio or like TV or newspaper or Internet, it's considered libel rather than slander. Because libel has the potential of reaching a much larger audience and therefore causes much greater harm. Honest researchers and professional journalists would rather resign than risk slandering or libeling a person. And yet for some reason, otherwise honest people seem to have no problem slandering Jesus, libeling Jesus, and making the statement, well, he can take it. They don't understand something. That in dishonoring Jesus, they dishonor God. And make no mistake about it, God cares. Look at the grievous insult in verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You'll remember that in the earlier passage, Jesus pointed out the fact that Satan was the father of the religious leaders. And when human beings sin, they reveal their paternity. Jesus pointed out the sad fact that the religious leaders did not love him and did not welcome him in verses 41 through 43. That Satan was a liar and a murderer. And since the religious leaders were liars and murderers, it revealed the fact of their own spiritual circumstances in verse 44. Then Jesus once again affirmed his own sinless condition. And now the religious leaders accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan and being demonically possessed. Again, a grievous insult, a grievous slander. To call a person a Samaritan was to call into question their origin and to vilify their worship. Remember, the Samaritans were the group of people who lived in the northern part of Israel. In the 7th century B.C., the Assyrians had come and raided the land and removed the Jewish people and replaced them with Syrian people. And Jews and the Assyrians created this biracial group of people who were really neither Jew nor Gentile. And they abandoned the true worship of God. And because they abandoned the true worship of God, they were considered a cult. And for the most part, the Jews despised the Samaritans. For a Jew to call another Jew a Samaritan had the effect of a 
powerful racial slur. When you think of the most wicked epithet that people give to one another, you get an idea. The religious leaders accuse Jesus not of being a friend of God, but being a foe of God. They're accusing Jesus of being a liar, a heretic, a lawbreaker. And when the religious leaders accuse Jesus of being controlled and manipulated by a demon or an evil spirit, they're implying that Jesus wants to do what demons do. Destroy human beings. Pervert the truth. Distort the truth. Deny the truth of the worship of God. Again, the Scottish Bible commentator William Barclay points out in the Aramaic language, the word for Samaritan was Shomeroni or Shomeron. It was the title that was used for the prince of devils, otherwise called Ajmadei. We translate it Asmodeus, Zamael. It's the word that is used in almost every culture, Satan. The Quran says that the Jews were seduced into idolatry by Shomeron, the prince of devils. And again, the word Shomeroni could mean you are a child of the devil. And so the religious leaders are accusing Jesus not only of being possessed by a demon, but we're going to discover later that the signs, the miracles, the powerful presence of Jesus is because he's in league with the devil. And again, there is no more slanderous accusation that could possibly be made. As a matter of fact, the Koran falsely says, and I quote, they, speaking of the Jews, claim we killed the Messiah Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of God, but they killed him not, nor did they crucify him, according to the Quran. In other words, in Islamic teaching, Judas switched places with Jesus on the cross, and it was Judas who died on the cross, and this is the reason that no self-respecting, observant Muslim can pray in the presence of a cross. They find it offensive. Skip Heitzig tells the story of a couple that were fighting in Southern California, and He's at the beach and they're throwing insults back and forth. They're saying every wicked, unkind, filthy thing that you can imagine. And finally, the girl, she was she, in just frustration. She was trying to think of the worst thing that she could say to this guy. And she said, you tourist. Yeah, that's the worst thing you can do in Southern California is call a person. A, you know, it's the epitome of the hated person. People say that they respect Jesus, that they honor Jesus, but they continue to lie about him. And so Jesus answers in verse 49, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Make no mistake about it. When you hear Oprah, when you hear Matt Damon, when you hear the so-called glitterati and Hollywood people talking about Jesus, when you hear about historical researchers and scientists who feel compelled to dishonor God and dishonor Jesus and that God doesn't really care and Jesus doesn't really care, you're wrong. Jesus doesn't even dignify the racial slur. 
And he disputes the charge that he is a demon. As a matter of fact, Jesus affirms that he knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's saying. He knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus is not insane. And Jesus is not motivated by malevolent spirits. Does he act like a person who's demonically possessed? Does he act and say the things that an insane person would say? As a matter of fact, Jesus claims that his words and his actions were meant to have the net effect of honoring God. And the net effect of the message of Jesus is to have human beings turn from their sin and to turn to the true and living God. And the net effect of the slander of the religious leaders is to turn away from God and to turn away from Jesus and to turn away from hope and to turn away from salvation. Jesus calls God my father. And when Jesus says, I honor my father, the implication is that the sinful man does not honor the father. And while Jesus, in fact, honors God, the religious leaders dishonor both Jesus and God. And so the real spirit of evil is seen in those who dishonor Jesus and God's offer of salvation in Christ. And look at verse 50, it says, And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Jesus makes another great statement, and you would do well to get it. All true honor comes from God. I'm going to repeat it. All true honor comes comes from God. It's easy for human beings to honor themselves, isn't it? As a matter of fact, it's so stinking easy, it's fatally easy to bask in the make-believe honor we create for ourselves. Imagine you think you're something special, and so you go to the trophy shop, and you buy the largest trophy that you can find in the shop, and you put on it, Gino Geraci. He's so cool. And so you take the trophy home, you put it in your home, you put it on the mantle, you put it in your office, and people come in and they go, Hey, what's that trophy for? Hey, I got this trophy for being cool. Really? Yeah. Imagine you could purchase nine gold medals, just like the ones that were awarded in Beijing. And you can put yourself... The gold medal winner in whatever sports events that you decide you want to have. And you people see the eight gold medals hanging from your, wherever you hang your gold medals. Wow. Awesome. But you know what? It's not honor at all. It's make-believe honor. It's selfish honor. By the way, we can honor each other. We can acquire honor for one another. We can finish school with honors, and there's nothing wrong with that. The world applauds and honor people who are successful and generous and noble and sacrificial, but the real honor is the honor that only eternity is capable of revealing, and the verdict of eternity isn't always the same as the verdict in time. And make no mistake about it, the honor that God gives you in Christ The honor that God gives you in Jesus is unmistakable and irrevocable. 
And look at this revelation. It says in verse 51, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Oh, now we know you're nuts, Jesus. You've said some pretty outrageous things, but this is perhaps one of the most outrageous of all. Now, again, sometimes we lose the sense of just how outrageous this is. Coming from anyone other than the lips of Jesus, it is comical and farcical. I'm fond of quoting a former famous president. I'll, you know, I'll say stuff like, most assuredly, I'll say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll be reelected over and over and over again. Now, see, you laugh and you think, If someone said, if anyone keeps my word and shall never see death, if a human being said those words, you would know they were nuts. Do you remember God's promise to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? God placed a tree in the middle of the garden. Adam's job was, according to Genesis 2.15, to tend it and keep it. And the next verse says, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Question. Did God keep his word? The answer is yes. Adam died. Eve died. Adam and Eve's offspring died. Their offspring died. By the way, did Adam and Eve die that very same day? In one sense, they didn't physically die. But yet in another sense, in a spiritual sense, they were cut off from God's special friendship. They were cut off from God's special relationship. And so Jesus makes one of the great claims in all of the Bible. And it's one thing to make a claim... And it's another thing to be able to make good on the claim. And Jesus says he has the ability to keep people from death. Once again, we're drawn to the words. We've seen them over and over in the text. Most assuredly, you remember what that means. Verily, verily, truly, truly. Jesus says, listen. And again, I repeat, listen. As a matter of fact, in the original language, it's, Emphatic. The word death is emphatic in the original language because it begins the sentence in the Greek text. It says, and I quote, death in no wise will he ever see. In the text, it employs what's known in the Greek language as a double negative. Ow, may. The idea is death in no wise and by no means will he ever see. Jesus makes this outrageous statement in the most compelling and emphatic manner that is capable in the language. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Make no mistake about it. That's what the New Testament teaches. Jesus tasted death for you and for me. 
The Bible says that he became sin who knew no sin, that you might experience the righteousness which is in God. As a matter of fact, pay close attention. There's a condition. If you read the text, look what it says. There's a, a condition for escaping death. Look what it says. If anyone keeps my word. Or you might translate this. Who keeps my saying. And the word or the saying is the full message that we've heard from John chapter 1 all the way to the present. What is the message? I've come from God. God sent me. I've come to the planet Earth to live the life that you couldn't live, to die for your sin, to take away the sin of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And the word keep is very specific in the original language. It's the Greek word terese. It means to watch over. It means to keep. It means to obey with diligence. It's the kind of watchful circumstances that a mother gives her newborn child. This is the kind of watchful, specific attention that is given when you care about the outcome of what it is that you're doing. And so it means to watch over with diligence. It means to fix and set one's heart upon the Word of God and then Keep it with all diligence. And if a man or a woman is persistent in obeying Christ, he will never see death. So what in the world does this mean? It certainly can't mean physical death. It can't mean the decomposition of the body. Paul wrote himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Adam and Eve died. Peter, James, and John died. The apostles died. So what could this possibly mean? For the person who knows Jesus, for the person who loves Jesus, death has lost its finality because the Christian has entered into friendship and fellowship and relationship with Jesus and with God. As a matter of fact, in a few chapters down the road, in chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus will say, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so, this is a relationship and a fellowship that neither time nor eternity can sever. The Christian goes from life to life. Death being only the mechanism that ushers us into the presence of God. And there's only one way, ladies and gentlemen. There's only one way that Jesus could make such an outrageous claim and be able to keep that claim. That he himself is God. Dr. Peter Marshall, who was the late chaplain of the United States Senate, illustrated it this way. He wrote, in a certain home, a little boy, the only son, was ill with an incurable disease. 
And month after month, the mother had tenderly nursed him. But as the weeks went by and he grew no better, the little fellow gradually began to understand the meaning of death and that he too realized that he was soon to die. And one day his mother had been reading the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And as she closed the book, the boy lay silent for a moment. And then he had asked the question that had been laying on the surface of his heart, the question that his mother knew would come and that that she dreaded. He asked her, Mother, what is it like to die? Mother, does it hurt? Quick tears filled her eyes and she sprang to her feet and she fled into the kitchen and, and she steadied herself against the stove and she shot up a prayer and she said, Lord, give me words to speak. Help me to answer this question. Help me to explain what it is that I need to explain. And she returned from the kitchen and she said, Kenneth, do you remember when you were a little boy and you would play so hard that you were too tired to undress and you would tumble into mommy and daddy's bed and you would fall asleep. And in the morning, you would wake up. And to your surprise, you would find yourself in your own bed. In the night, your father would pick you up in his big, strong arms and he would carry you into your own bedroom. Kenneth, death is like that. We just wake up one morning to find ourselves in the room where we belong because the Lord loves us. And the lad's shining face looked up and told her that there would be no more fear, only love and trust in his heart as he went to meet the Father in heaven. By the way, he never questioned again. And several weeks later, he fell asleep. Just as she had said. The Christian, the follower of Jesus, the keeper and acknowledger of his claim, when he or she closes their eyes, they do not see death, but they see Jesus. And now we understand what the scriptures tell us when it says, and we see Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In verse 52, look what it says. Then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Do you understand what's happening? Once again, the religious leaders are outraged by his claim. The Lord Jesus has revealed perhaps one of the greatest truths that has ever been spoken on the planet Earth. And the religious leader's response, now we know you have a demon. That, my friends, is the insanity of unbelief. That is the insanity 
of doubt. That is the insanity of people who rebuke, reject, deny the words of Jesus. And the religious leaders raise an argument. Hey, Abraham is dead. The prophets are dead. But are they? Are they really dead? Do you remember the story in the New Testament when they're trying to trick Jesus and they create this whole situation where there is this woman and she marries this man and he dies and then he has six brothers in a row. She marries each and every one. They all die and they're trying to address this issue of the resurrection and they're laughing. <laughs> Jesus, what a fruitcake nutcase, this whole concept that you're talking about the resurrection. And Jesus says, you err, because you don't understand the word of God or the power of God. And do you remember how he responds to their statement that there is no resurrection? He says, every observant Jew says this. He prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Is God a God of the living? Or is God a God of the dead? The living. And so, in some fundamental way, these men are alive. No wonder they ask the question, Who do you make yourself out to be? Look at verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Indeed, that is the question, isn't it? If you settle that question, then all other questions fall into place. Who are you? You know what you deserve? You deserve to know at least what Jesus had to say about himself. The religious leaders place Jesus next to the greatest figures in Jewish history and then compare him with them but I want you to understand something. That was as far as they were willing to go. But faith goes one step further. Faith says you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what it says in John chapter 6, verse 69. It isn't simply to evaluate that. It's to go one step further. John Phillips writes, death is separation. It separates man from man, and it separates man from God for all eternity. Death is not extinction of being. The death of unbelievers is a terrible reality. They die in utter loneliness, and they go out into the horror of a greater darkness to be cut off from God in their sins while the endless ages roll. The death of believers, on the other hand, is a warm Welcome home to be with God and His Son forever and ever in a tumult of bliss in what the Bible calls joy unspeakable and full of glory. Physical death is only a temporary measure pending the coming resurrection and it's swallowed up in life, an abundant life and free life, unquote. And so... Jesus goes to the greater authority and he answers in verse 54, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. So Jesus says yet another amazing claim. 
he claims that God is, is his father. Not in the normal sense of the word where he is the creator and he is a creation. He is making claim that in a substantive and unique and specific way, he has friendship and relationship to God that is experienced by no one else. And Jesus points to God's authority and inerrancy. He points to their ignorance. And then he contrasts their ignorance with his integrity. You know, it's one thing to say to a person, you don't know what you're talking about. And it's another thing to point to yourself and say, what part of my life, what part of my conduct, what part of my speech, and what part of my behavior isn't completely consistent with what God wants? They're accusing Jesus of being self-deceived. But the religious leaders were self-deceived. They imagined that they knew God. But in reality, they were strangers to the true and living God. You're never so easily fooled than when you're trying to fool someone else. And look at verse 55. Yet you have not known Him. But I know Him. And if I say I do not know him, I'll be a liar, just like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Now understand something. The religious leaders claimed to know God, but they were lying. A lot of you have family and friends, and you've asked them that question. Do you know God? Do you know Jesus? And they'll look you straight in the eye and they'll say, I know God. I know Jesus. I remember when I was first asked that question. I was in high school. I was a junior in high school and I just had a raging debate with a Jehovah's Witness. And this person came to me and they said, hey, are you a Christian? I said, of course I am. I'm a Catholic. And a voice whispered inside of my heart. No, you're not. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. And I went. Where did that come from? I claim to know God, but the truth? I didn't really know God. I might have had a religious upbringing. I might have walked through the religious motions. The religious leaders thought that they were Abraham's seed, but they were Satan's seed. The religious leaders went to temple. The religious leaders worshipped. The religious leaders gave alms. The religious leaders prayed. I went to church. I prayed. I gave gifts, but I didn't know the Lord. And Jesus points to his own integrity. But I know him. By the way, there are two words translated no in verse 55. When it says but I know him, and yet you have not known him. John uses two different words in that very same sentence when it says, but you, yet you have not known him. The Lord uses a word that carries the idea of knowing by experience or knowing by effort or acquiring knowledge or becoming acquainted. It's the Greek word egnokate. And then for all their learning, they still didn't know God. And in proclaiming his own knowledge of God, he said, I know him. He uses the word oida. 
And that conveys the idea of knowing without effort. It's effortless knowledge. Their efforts to know God were objective. His was subject. Their knowledge of God was progressive. His knowledge of God was absolute. Let me give you yet another example. It's the kind of knowledge that a child has who grows up in the household of his mother and father. You don't have to be introduced to your mother and your father because you were born there. You were raised there. You lived there. Probably just as important a question. Do you know God? Do you know Jesus? And I have to even go one step further. It's not good enough anymore to say, do you know Jesus? I have to ask you, which Jesus do you know? The spirit brother of Lucifer, who's the Mormon Jesus? The archangel Michael, who's the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? The Jesus is one path among many paths. The Oprah Jesus. You might say, well, why are you picking on Oprah? Oprah has 50 million viewers to her television program. To these 50 million viewers, Oprah says, and I quote, One of the biggest mistakes we make is to believe that there is only one way to live. There are many ways, many paths to what you call God, unquote. She's lying. She's slandering Jesus. Imagine that Jesus were right there and and Jesus said to Oprah, excuse me, Oprah, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And Oprah says, I'm Oprah Winfrey. And Jesus says, I am the living Lord who created the heavens and the earth and who created you. I am the one who came so that you didn't have to die and so that you could experience hope and forgiveness and love and restoration that's in God. Jesus knew God, and he refused to diminish or deny or distort that relationship in order to accommodate other people's misunderstanding and wrong thinking. Look what he says in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Twice the religious leaders have brought up the subject of Abraham. The religious leaders boasted dissent from Abraham, and then they dared Jesus to compare himself with Abraham. On my radio program, I'm often asked the question, how were people saved in the Old Testament? And this passage provides part of the answer. As a matter of fact, Jesus is in fact claiming that he is the one that Abraham longed for, that Jesus is the one Abraham hoped for, and that Jesus is the one that Abraham eventually came to know. Remember, Abraham held a unique position among the Jewish people. He was the father and the founder of nations. And remember, the Lord appeared to Abraham, challenged Abraham, and the Bible tells us that Abraham believed God and followed God. And when Abraham was on the earth, he saw the Messiah's day by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, this is what it says. 
These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed them that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. It's the writer of Hebrews' way of saying that Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David looked into the future, saw the promise of God, the provision of a Messiah, and they longed for Him and loved Him and believed Him. Do you know how people were saved in the Old Testament? The same way you are. By grace, through faith, believing the promise that God would keep His promise. And in verse 57, then the Jews said to Him, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? You got to understand something. In the Jewish culture, 50 was sort of the magic mile marker of maturity. In the Old Testament economy, a Jewish priest retired at the age of 50. So if I go to the uh, if I go to the trophy shop, I think I'm going to get a trophy that says the dude is older than 50. Jesus is probably 33 years old when he makes this statement. But time and circumstances have taken a toll on him. Look what it says in verse 58. Jesus said to them, most assuredly. There's that word again. Most assuredly. I I need you to understand this. We need to be clear about this. I'm going to repeat it. Verily, verily, truly, truly. What I'm about to say to you is absolutely the truth. I say to you, before Abraham was, ego, eme. In the Greek language, it's the same as the tetragrammaton of the Hebrew language. He is claiming to be the self-existent, eternal God who occupies space and time and eternity. Who and what is Jesus claiming to be? Jesus is claiming to be the pre-existent, always existing, eternal God. To be above and beyond human time and reckoning. To be eternal. Jesus is God and Jesus is God in human flesh. So why would he acquire a second nature? Become a human being. Bring a message of hope and salvation. The message of God. The gospel of God. He comes into the world. He makes promises and he's able to keep those promises. And he says something that makes it difficult for even the dullest person to mistake his words. But some do. Even after all that, they do. Robert W. Funk of the Jesus Seminar writes, quote, What we need is a new fiction. We need a new narrative of Jesus, a new gospel, if you will, that takes Jesus differently in the grand scheme, the epic story, unquote. The reason Funk wants a new fiction is because he rejects the claims and the narratives of the gospel of the Bible. The reason Funk wants a new gospel is because he thinks that the old gospel is fake. And you know what the old gospel is? You're a sinner. That God's willing to save you. And Jesus can not only forgive your sin and reconcile you to God and give you a righteous nature that's in Jesus, but He can guarantee that you will wake up in the arms of eternity when you lay your head down for the last time. 
How do men react to the presence of God in their midst? They pick up rocks. They pick up stones. They reject Him. They oppose Him. They attempt to destroy Him. They don't want to have anything to do with Him. Lest His claims take hold of their lives and they be forced to change their thinking and change their beliefs and to change the way that they live. Eric Reese in Harper's Magazine over a hundred years ago wrote how Thomas Jefferson stripped Jesus of his claims. Quote, Jefferson took a pair of scissors to the King James Bible Jefferson cut out the virgin birth, all the miracles, including the most important one, the resurrection, then pasted together what was left and called it the philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. Fifteen years later, in retirement at Monticello, he expanded the text, added French, Latin, Greek translations, and called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. In an 1819 letter to William Short, Jefferson recollected that the cut and paste job was the work of two or three nights only at Washington after getting through the evening task of reading the letters and papers of the day, unquote. By stripping Jesus of his claims to deity and divinity and the miracles, Jefferson proudly asserted that he had, had extracted diamonds from a dunghill to reveal the true teachings of Jesus. But you know what, sadly? Jefferson wanted moral diamonds, but he didn't want a supernatural Jesus. Because you see, Jefferson didn't want to break off his ongoing wicked and immoral relationship with his slave and mistress, Sally Hemings. You know what he wanted to do? He wanted to continue to live a life of rebellion and rejection against God. Arguably, he was a great man. But he created... What millions of other people have created, a perforated Bible, that you can punch out the parts that you don't agree with, even if it means slandering and libeling Jesus. And look at verse 59. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. By the way, just for your edification, the word stones in this verse means heavy stones. Because Herod's temple was under constant renovation, there was always plenty of rocks to go around. And Chapter 6, verse 11 of Luke, it says, But they were filled with rage and disgust with one another what they might do with Jesus. Don't you think it's interesting that the chapter begins with Jesus defending a woman with the words, you know the words, He that is without sin among you, let him cast what? The first stone at her in verse 7. And it ends with enraged religious leaders picking up stones to hurl them at Jesus to give him the death from which he has just saved her. What will you do? Will you pick up stones like the religious leaders and throw them at Jesus? There's plenty of stones. Stones of slander and stones of libel. C.S. Lewis brings the choice into sharp focus. What are we to make of Jesus? Will you accept his claims or reject his claims? 
The things he says are very different from what other teachers say. Others say, this is the truth about the universe. But Jesus says, I am the truth and the way and the life. No one, no man reaches absolute reality except through me. There's a storm coming. A hurricane. That's coming and promises to destroy everything in its path. In 1938, there was a man with a home on the south shore of Long Island, and he ordered himself a long-desired barometer from Abercrombie & Fitch, the famous New York City sporting goods store. And the barometer arrived on the morning of September 21st, and the owner proudly hung it on the back porch. And half an hour later, he took a peek at his high-priced toy, and he was irritated to see the needle stuck at Hurricane. Quickly, he sat down and he wrote an angry letter to Abercrombie and Fitch demanding a new barometer. And when he returned home from the local post office after mailing the letter, his house and the barometer were gone. September 21st, 1938, it developed, was the day the worst hurricane ever hit Long Island. And you might buy a Bible, expensive, with leather and cool studs, with beautiful ribbons and red letters. And the scriptures are stuck as they point to Jesus and point to grace and point to mercy and point to forgiveness. It's stuck on Jesus. You don't want Jesus. You want to live your life for yourself. You want to continue to live in rebellion and resist God. And so you pick up the stones of slander and libel. And you say these words to yourself. A voice whispers in your ear. He doesn't really love you. He can't really save you. He won't forgive you. And he can't keep you from death. But Jesus says, I really do love you. I really can forgive you. I really can save you. And I promise you that one day I will come for you. There will come a day when you will lay your head on your pillow for the last time. And like the psalmist said, you will awake in the presence of the glorious God who you've come to know and love. I'm going to ask you to stand at this time. And I'm going to have the worship team come up. And as the worship team comes up, I'm going to pray for you. And as I pray for you, I'm going to invite those of you who think you know God, but in fact your heart has been telling you there's something missing and there's something wrong. I'm going to invite you to come forward so that you can truly experience that love and hope. And remember what the text says? He who keeps my word. Christian, have you wandered from God's word? Have you found yourself estranged 
from the person of God and and the things of God and the church of God and, and the promises of God. And you've found yourself way far away from home. And you need to come home. And you might be asking, well, why do you do this publicly and openly? Because Jesus called his disciples openly and publicly. And when you come forward, there's a settled assurance that takes place in your own heart. And you know what? I want you to experience joy by surrounded by people who love you and who are rooting for you. And I want you to experience what it's like to hear the crowds cheer because as soon as you go out that exit sign and you live, leave this building, there's a world out there that will jeer you. Cheers? Cheers. But guess what? In the end, instead of emptiness, fullness. Instead of darkness, light. Instead of death, life. Instead of a burden of guilt, forgiveness. And instead of a terrifying sense of what the future holds, hope. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person who's standing. For those who know God and those who think that they know God. And those who aren't certain. Lord, I pray that they would confirm in their own hearts with certainty and assurance that they know you and that they love you and that they've experienced life and love and hope in Jesus. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to come and I want you to stand right here. It's okay. No one's going to make fun of you. Just come forward. And Christian, those of you who, who found yourself wandering far, far, far away from God, distant and estranged, and you need to renew your commitment and to walk in hope so that you keep, that means you diligently serve His Word. Just come on down. I'm going to have... Isaac play, the worship team play, and as we sing this song, I'm just going to invite you to come. All I want help you build my life upon all this world. Yeah, now's the time, praise the Lord. In the world, all I want Spent in the